Remaining standing, would you please join me in prayer? Father, we come together this morning to wait for you. We wait for you to act. We wait for you to move. Most of all, we wait for you to be faithful to your promise to come again and make all things new. Father, I ask now that as we look at your scriptures, pray that we would see Jesus who came down for us, who died for us, who rose again and who now rules and reigns the very cosmos. And in seeing Jesus, may hope and assurance fill our hearts that we may have courage to continue in this race. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Please be seated. Well, good morning again, everyone. My mic is officially on now. I just leaned over to Pete and said, this is just Bush League. We are out of practice up here. I didn't even have my mic turned on, so... Man, got to get back into it. You do not have to be an anthropologist or a psychologist to make the observation confidently that humans do not like to wait. We hate it, right? We hate waiting in lines, all kinds of lines. At the bank, we hate waiting in lines in traffic. We even hate waiting in lines at Disney World. We hate waiting to buy things, right? Very few of us. So there are some of you out there that I'm sure are very frugal and you, you know, save up for things and then you buy it. But that's not most of us, right? We just slap down the credit card if we want something. We don't like to wait. This one really resonates with me in particular, but I do not like waiting for seasonal changes. In particular, whenever it's August in November in Charleston. When it's 85 degrees on Thanksgiving Day. I dislike that. I dislike waiting for it to feel like the season it should feel like. Waiting is hard. And most of us will do just about anything we can to avoid it. I referenced the credit cards, right? We don't wait to purchase things. We just buy it on credit cards. If you, wait, if you don't like waiting in line uh, for roller coasters at Disney World, there's this amazing thing called a fast pass where you just put your place in line and then you show up and you just get to skip the line and go right up to the ride. I don't, know when, I don't know when the last time you were waiting in line at, say, the DMV, God forbid, or um, any place like that, doctor's office, whatever, but look, look around. What does everybody have on, right? Their smartphone. So that's been a gift for those of us who dislike waiting. And with regard to the seasons, I don't know about you, but whenever it, uh, about early September, just right after Labor Day, I just begin wearing boots and sweaters just to kind of usher in that change in season because I just cannot wait for fall. And now, of course, these things are all trivial to some degree, right? Waiting in lines, waiting on purchases, waiting for seasons are one thing. Because we're pretty much assured that they will end. The line will end. We will get in to see the doctor. It will eventually become fall, like it feels this morning. But waiting on other things, more significant things, like seasons of life, can be much more difficult. Because there's no guarantee how long we'll have to wait and there's no guarantee that we'll, our waiting will be, not be in vain. There's no guarantee, for instance, if we are single and long to be married, that we will find a spouse. There's no guarantee, right? We can wait and wait and wait, and it might just be in vain. It may not be for us. We can wait, for instance, to have children and long for that time to, to welcome a child into this world. But that may be in vain. It is not assured. It's not guaranteed. We may wait for success and promotions in our careers. 
And for some of us, they will come about, but not for every one of us. It is not guaranteed. We have no control over those things, and so we wait. And it's hard, it's difficult. But waiting in vain can be absolutely devastating. For this reason, for our dislike of waiting, the church has given us this entire season that is devoted to it. And over the next four weeks, we will grapple with what it means to be those who wait well. As I said, this morning begins the first season, the first Sunday of Advent, when we are waiting together collectively with Christians all around the world and really throughout all time, right, for the appearance of Christ. It's a time for those of us who gather for worship to reflect on the figures and the stories that encapsulated Christ's first Advent. And so each Sunday will kind of feature a different character or story about the first coming of Christ. And in it, we learn longing, we learn patience, and we learn hope that Christ will come again. Episcopal priest uh, Fleming Rutledge has said this in a very deep sense. The entire Christian life in this world is lived in Advent, between the first and second comings of the Lord, in the midst of the tension between things the way they are and things the way they ought to be. And so, yes, Advent is a time to mourn the brokenness of this world, but it's also a time to yearn for a future when all things will be well, when all things will be made new. And so it teaches us year after year, Advent after Advent, to be people who wait with hope and with patience. The quote in your bulletin, Charles Spurgeon says this about people who are called to wait. If the Lord Jehovah makes us wait, let us do so with our whole hearts. For blessed are they who wait for him. He is worth waiting for. The waiting itself is beneficial to us. It tries faith, exercises patience, trains submission, and endears the blessing when it comes. The Lord's people have always been awaiting people. And so that's what we do in this season. We wait. Advent pushes back on all of our impatience, all of our propensity towards control, and calls us to wait. This morning's reading from the Old Testament, from the prophet Isaiah, is somewhat of a manual for waiting. And I'll argue this morning that it's a manual for waiting well. And so I invite you to grab a pew Bible and go ahead and turn there. If you have your own Bible, turn to Isaiah 64. On your pew Bible, it's on page 623. If you'd like to follow along. It can be said that Isaiah is the prophet of Advent. He's the prophet of recognizing the pain and brokenness of the moment, but pointing forward to a time of hope and expectation. The entire book is one uh, that's written in a time of great upheaval and turmoil. The book begins with political turmoil, with the death of the king of Judah, Ahaz. It's filled with military turmoil as they are invaded multiple times by nations that surround them. It's a time of great religious and moral turmoil when Isaiah is calling them to recognize and repent of their idolatry and their injustice. Isaiah comes to them again and again and again with a message of judgment, but also a message of hope. And this particular chapter, chapter 64, envisions a people who have returned from exile. They did not repent in time and were sent into exile, but God in his grace has brought them back into the land. 
And the last few verses of this chapter, uh, they reference their cities and the temple. And so they come back from exile and they look at the utter devastation that has been brought about. They look at a city, Jerusalem, that is destroyed. They look at a temple that is in, in disrepair. They've been given a taste of restoration from their exile, but they're still waiting for its completion. They're waiting for its fullness. These people are a people not unlike us. And they teach us how to wait well. Their prayer begins on verse one, and they say, oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down, that the mountains might quake at your presence, as when fire kindles brushwood and the fire causes water to boil, to make your name known to your adversaries and that the nations might tremble at your presence. Their main prayer is this, come down again. Come down like you did before. The references to the mountains smoking are clearly about Sinai. After God had rescued his people from the land of Egypt, Moses met with God, and all Israel, in fact, met with God on this mountain. God was dwelling among them, gave them the law. And they said, do that again. This event, both the exodus from Egypt and the the moment at Sinai, are paradigmatic for God's people. This was the moment when God had acted most decisively in the past. He'd rescued them from slavery. He'd brought them into the desert. He'd met with them and given them his law. And then they had hope that he was leading them to a promised land. And they're asking here, come down again. You've brought us back into our land, but come down like before. Live among us. Bring restoration. Bring us into that promised land. And they cry out so loudly. This word they use, rend, is a strong word. It means tear, rip open the heavens. We are crying out in desperation for you to come. And they go on to say that no one has heard or seen a God who acts on behalf of his people like you have. Verse five, you meet him who joyfully works righteousness, those who remember you in your ways. And so the first lesson that we learn from this prayer is that waiting well takes remembrance. It takes remembrance. They look back at God's past actions on their behalf and they find hope that God will act again. This is why, as I said during Advent, that we look back to Christ's first coming and find hope that he will come again. We look back at the incarnation, the miracle of the incarnation. We recognize that God has not abandoned us, that God has come for us. And so no matter how broken the world seems, no matter how desperate our situation, we can find hope to trust that he has not checked out. We look back even here at the cathedral at God's faithfulness. Generations past, people have gathered on Advent Sunday for over 200 years. That is a story of God's faithfulness. Even when we have been unfaithful, he has been faithful to this people. And you are the fruit of that this morning. We look back at God's past action in our own personal lives, for the way that God saved us, for the ways that God has met us in brokenness, and maybe even meeting us now in the midst of brokenness, anxiety, depression. We will not wait well if we are those who forget. And we need, of course, all the reminders, right? Because we are forgetful people. It's why we 
do this. It's why we have liturgy. It's why we read the scriptures and pray these prayers. It's why we come to the table here in a few moments and remember God's decisive acts on our behalf in the Eucharist. It's why we need community and friends and people who have walked with us over uh, years and decades to remind us and say, hey, remember, God has been faithful. He will act again on your behalf. As God's people here in this passage in Isaiah 64, reflect upon their plight. They recognize that they are not simply victims. That they have not been taken advantage of. That they have not been judged unfairly. That they themselves are in fact at fault. They were given this promise. They were brought into the promised land and the Lord told them that if you are faithful to my covenant, you will remain in this land. But if you're unfaithful, you will be expelled from it. For God will not dwell with unholy people. And so they were sent into exile in judgment. Much of the book of Isaiah addresses this covenantal unfaithfulness and calls them to repent. But clearly they did not do it in time. And so here they admit their culpability. They admit that they have sinned and continue in sin. All of the the verbs here imply continuous and ongoing. It's not just that they... Uh, sinned against the Lord once, but it's, 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 it was the practices of their nation. And they say at the end of verse five, behold, you were angry and we sinned. In our sins, we have been a long time and shall we be saved? And they recognize, they go on uh, over the next few verses to recognize the cascading effects of their unfaithfulness. They move from just simply sinning to moving beyond that and say that it has made us unclean. We have become those who are unclean. The implication there is ritually unclean, meaning they cannot go up to the temple before the Lord to make offerings and to worship. More than that, it's even their righteous acts, even the good things that they attempt to do have become as filthy rags or unclean garments. They say that they fade away, that as the wind Blows, they are taken away, they're swept away. It's a reference to the decay of death. They feel as though they are just wasting away. And most sadly, the cascading effects of their sin have led to divine alienation. God has hidden his face from them and they don't even bother to, to pray, to ask the Lord. And so an important part to waiting well is repentance. As they wait on God, they spend time in self-reflection and recognize the ways that they have sinned, the ways that they have fallen short of God's call for them. So too for us, we have a tendency at times to focus on the effects of sin, right? We look at the world. We look at the brokenness of this city. We look at the brokenness of this moment with the plague going all throughout this world, ravaging our uh, nations and continents of the earth and lament that. But if you were to ask a child, as I do often, in the midst of chaos and brokenness in their room, for instance, or or some kind of violence has happened or erupted, if you ask them, what's the problem, what are they going to say? They did it, right? Or it just happened on its own, right? There's no admission of culpability. And so, too, for us, when we look at the effects of sin, at war, injustice, plagues, hunger, we're also called to recognize that sin begins here. Its effects are seen out there, but it begins here. It begins with me. It's not just systems. It's not just principalities. It's not just powers. It is me. I am to blame. Anglican priest Tish Warren 
has this to say. We dwell in a world still racked with conflict, violence, suffering, darkness. Advent holds space for our grief and it reminds us that all of us in one way or another are not only wounded by the evil in the world, but are also wielders of it, contributing our own moments of unkindness or impatience or selfishness, or even we could go beyond that to say evil, right? And so that is why Advent is in some ways a penitential season. Some uh, theologians have called it a little Lent. It's a small season, just four weeks. It's not as long as Lent, but it is, it's got a penitential component. Yes, God will come and make all things new, and we hope for that. But for him to do that, right, he has to expel evil and sin from the world. He has to judge. He has to cleanse. He has to baptize the world of all of its evil and our hearts of all of its evil. Right, I, I, I know that the temptation is to overlook all of that. Right, we uh, went yesterday and, and picked out our Christmas tree and we're listening to Christmas music and you know, it's all so jovial, it's all so happy, it's all so fun. It's easy in a season, in most Advent seasons, to get lost in the beauty of the lights and the decor, in buying gifts, shopping lists, preparing menus, all of the wonderful music. But here we are called to be counterculture. Advent does not allow for that. It's a season to look at the darkness of the world, at the darkness of our own hearts, and to respond with repentance as we wait. I do think that this year it has been much harder to get lost in the sentimentality of Christmas, right? If we could escape it with lights and decoration and presents and food, we would. But as many of us, I'm assuming this last week, spent Thanksgiving alone or just with our own family unit. We can't escape that this year is particularly broken. And we are reminded of all of the brokenness of the world. In some ways, this entire year has been one that's felt like Advent. It's felt like a year of waiting. Plans have been derailed. Some of us have lost income. All of us have been racked with a level of anxiety or depression. It's been a year of waiting for cases to go up or go down, for treatments to be developed. It's been a year of longing for justice. It's been a year of waiting on elections and election results. It's been a year of waiting now for a vaccine, right? To be distributed so we can all be free of this terrible plague. And yet in each of those things, this entire year has given us no guarantees, right? There was no guarantee that cases were going to go down. There's been no guarantee that a vaccine was going to be developed in a year. We had no assurance would we be waiting in vain? And like God's people in Isaiah, looking around at their city and at the temple, they ask the question, shall we be saved? That has been the question of our world this year. Shall we be saved? But our passage does not end there in brokenness. It ends with hope. Look at verse eight and verse nine. But now, O Lord, you are our father. We are the clay and you are the potter. We are all the work of your hand. Be not so terribly angry, O Lord, and remember not our iniquity forever. Behold, please look. We are all your people. They end the passage with hope, recognizing that God himself has made promises, that he is a father to them, that they are clay in his hands. They are his workmanship. And based on that identity, based on the assurance of who they are before Yahweh the Lord, they say, remember us. 
Look at us. Come for us. And so, friends, yes, Advent asks us to wait. It asks us to remember as we wait and to repent as we wait. But we wait in assurance. God has acted decisively on our behalf in Jesus Christ. God has come down, dwelled among us in the incarnation, become like us in every way. God has acted decisively in the cross and made us his children and called us his own. God has acted decisively in the resurrection of Jesus from the dead, ushering in new creation. And even now, he reigns the world through his ascension. He has acted on our behalf, friends. And so we are not those who wait in vain. God will come again. We are his possession. Amen.